so tonight we are taking a, uh, a break, actually the rest of the semester, we're taking a break from um, our Colossians series, and we're going to do a Christmas series. Just two weeks, we're going to do a Christmas series, and the title of it is A Condescending Love. Um, and it's around Christmas that uh, it's culturally, it's, it's more okay, it's Christmas and Easter, where it's more okay to talk about Jesus, to talk about faith, to talk about Christianity. Um, more than any other time of year, though, Christmas specifically, uh, because the reality is, is even your, histori- or your historians, your historians and your history professors on campus are going to agree that the man, Jesus Christ, existed. They're going to agree that this, this dude named Jesus existed a couple thousand years ago. Um, not, it, because it's not only the Bible that testifies to that fact, but other histories, other historical records testify to that fact. Jesus existed. And so around this time of year, it makes more sense, according to the world and those around us, that we celebrate Jesus. It makes a little bit more sense around this time of year for us to talk about Jesus. Um, you might even actually get your friend or your family into church if they don't normally go around this time. You get them to church on Christmas Eve. You get them to church um, uh, over the Christmas weekend because of the point of Christmas. And so um, the, uh, as much as, as we like to celebrate Jesus around this time of year, as much as this is a, a time of celebration for the Christian, um, there are a lot of other things going on around this time of year right now, especially for you guys college students. You have finals. Some of y'all are going home. The, the more litest of y'all are going to Austin. What up? Um, but you got a lot going on. You got finals. You're going home. You're gonna, there's food. There's gifts. There's family. You go see your, your, your dog. You go see your friends back from high school, like, especially you freshmen. This is the first time you get a well, second time, I guess, you were home like this week. But you know what I mean? There's a lot going on around Christmas. And so um, even though many of us focus on our faith around this time of year, it can often be just a side dish to the main course, which is often one of those other things uh, that we focus on, especially as college students when you get removed from your regular context. Um, But even as we do consider our faith around this time of year, even as we do consider the birth of Jesus and the incarnation, there's often, there's often a deficiency in what exactly it is we consider around this time of year. There's often a deficiency in how we consider who Jesus is. Uh, How many of y'all have seen that movie, uh, uh, Talladega Nights? A Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Oh, yeah. I told, I told y'all. People have seen this movie. All right, so there's like two, there's a lot of famous lines in it. But other than I'm on you like a spider monkey, which is the greatest line in the history of cinema, there's, they're at the dinner table and they're praying. And the main character prays and says, dear little baby Jesus, in your little ghost manger, in your little, here, here it is, dear little baby Jesus, in your little ghost manger, just looking at your baby Einstein development videos, learning about shapes and colors. Kind of ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Not kind of, it's absolutely ridiculous. But that sentiment, that idea is often, maybe not so explicitly, but the way that we look at Jesus around this time of year. We just focus on that that baby Jesus, the man Jesus. And so even our hymns get at this. Even a lot of our hymns get at this. And to to a degree, that's good because Jesus did exist. And so we want to celebrate the fact that Jesus as a man in flesh existed Um, but what I want to do tonight is I want to challenge that. I want to challenge the way that we think about Jesus around Christmas. I want to challenge us tonight, kind of in a similar way Paul's going to challenge us in our text tonight. Um, 
And really what it is, is I want you to think differently. I want you to think more specifically. And in our text tonight, we're going to get at what are you thinking about? How are you, you processing? What does your mind look like? And so um, our text for tonight is uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And uh, Becca just read part of that for us. Uh, but we're going to read the whole thing, and it's going to be up on the screen, so you don't got to uh, open your app if you don't want to. But if you want to, you could be an extra holy Christian and open your app or your actual Bible, and you get super Christian points. Um, all right, so Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, as God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray one more time. Father God, we are... We are humbled and we are, um, we are especially aware of, of Jesus around this time of year. And Father, I pray that as we dive into your word tonight and as we look at what you've revealed to us, the truth that you've revealed to us, that our understanding of who Jesus is would be more complete, um, would be a more accurate and more glorious picture because we cannot have too high a view of Jesus. So I, Father, I pray tonight that that you expand our minds, that you expand our vision and our understanding of who Jesus is. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, so, um, so just a moment of background for that text that we read. Um, this, up to this point in the, in the letter, Paul is kind of dealing with suffering, his own suffering and the suffering of the church. And so he's, he's preaching the gospel to them, he's teaching them the gospel, and what he's doing is he's encouraging them. He's giving them comfort have you guys, you guys, most of you probably heard to live as Christ, to die as gain, right? That comes like a little bit before this. The whole, the whole idea is he's responding to this, this struggle of suffering that they're having. Um, and that brings us to our text to tonight, which that first verse, if we can look at verse one through two again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full of cord and of one mind. That first verse is Paul kind of following how he's building out an encouragement for them through the gospel, an encouragement as they suffer, an encouragement as they wrestle with the oppressive governments that want to stamp out Christianity. And so the whole first verse is basically a bunch of rhetorical questions, right? It says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, He's not asking if there's encouragement in Christ. He's telling you, he's reaffirming there is encouragement in Christ. Comfort in the love of God. Participation in spirit. 
That's, that's a kind of similar word to fellowship, fellowship with the Spirit. As a Christian, you have the Spirit of God. And so this first verse is just a series of rhetorical questions, and Paul's reaffirming the effect of the gospel in their life. And um, uh, there is, uh, excuse me, I got lost. Uh, so Paul's aim in our passage, so that, that first verse is basically just a reaffirmation of what he had preached to them prior. And so in our text tonight, he's gonna transition a little bit. And he's gonna say, you have this gospel that encourages you. You have this gospel that comforts you and gives you joy. And so now we wanna, he wants to press on something different. And as I said earlier, he wants to press on how they're thinking. Look one more time at verse two. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The pressure Paul's putting on them is not an emotional reaction. It's not some kind of um, emotion that he wants to push on them. He wants to press on how they're thinking about things. Paul's urge for this church that is amidst their suffering that they be unified in how they're thinking, be of the same mind, this one mind. But what is it that he's telling them to think about? What is that one mind? What is it that he wants their mind to kind of build around? Let's look, we're gonna skip a couple verses and we're gonna go ahead to Philippians 2, verse five. Have this mind among your, so here's the mind. He says, be of one mind in the same mind. Here's the mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So now we know what Paul's talking about the gospel. The gospel that encourages prior, and now Paul is talking about the gospel, thinking on the gospel. Their minds set on Jesus, the gospel. And so, um, for them, it was a, the, the gospel unified them, the gospel encouraged them amidst their suffering, and uh, for us, the gospel is unifying. There's a lot of different people in this room. There's a lot of different people in this room. We have we have liberal arts students. We have law students. We have guys that want to study bugs in the stars for a living. We have guys that want to, we have athletes. Like we have a lot of different people in this room. And there are, there is, there is no greater unifying truth than the gospel of Jesus. And that's what he, he's calling them to think in unity. To have the same theology. To think the same. You see, the greatest means for equity and equality in this world is the gospel of Jesus. It's the ultimate equalizer. But Paul gets a little bit more specific than just saying unity and Jesus in the same sentence. Let's look uh, through the, the, the whole thing that Becca read one more time. Philippians 2 verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so tonight, what we're gonna look at we're going to look at the identity of Jesus because the reality is Jesus is more than just a baby in a manger or some dude that lived 2,000 years ago. Jesus is far, far more than just a baby in a manger or someone that lived 2,000 years ago. And we're going to look at four different pieces in this text of the identity of Jesus. 
And those four pieces are Jesus is God, Jesus became flesh, Jesus the Savior, and Jesus exalted. And these four pieces are going to kind of make up who Jesus is in our text tonight. And so uh, the first of those four notes that Jesus hit is that, or that Paul hits, rather, is that Jesus is God. And we see that in verses five through six. We're going to do a lot of reading tonight, and there's a purpose, and we'll get to that at the end. But we're going to read this over and over again. So verse five through six, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, a vital and indispensable piece of the gospel is that Jesus is God. It is vital and it is indispensable to the Christian faith. And we see that in this text when he says, though Jesus in the form of God. And that can kind of like, that word form, we can kind of misinterpret that a little bit. We can see outward appearance in that. We can, we can see looking at or appearing as. And so when we read that, we can say, Jesus appeared as God or looked like God. But uh, St. Augustine and a lot of other smarter men than I, most of them dead, have done a lot of work on this kind of word. And that word means a whole lot more than just outward appearance. It means in essence or makeup. The very essence of who Jesus is, is God. And so when you read that verse, it says, have this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form, though he was the essence of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. And so, in other words, Jesus is God. The divine attributes that we consider gods, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere, all-loving, all-kind, justice, all of those we can attribute to Jesus because Jesus is God. And John 1 actually is a beautiful, beautiful picture of describing Jesus as God. The first verse of John 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then you skip to verse 14 and it says, the word was made, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word is Jesus. See, the reality is before Jesus was ever a baby in a manger, he existed in perfect communion with God as God. And this is a really difficult concept for us to kind of reconcile. God is Trinity. God in three persons. There's one God, but three persons. How can that work out? Well, I'm, we don't have time for that tonight. Also, if you have an analogy for that, don't ever use it because it's probably terrible. But the, our, point, our point for tonight is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He is the second member of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus is God the Son. And see, before Jesus even entered the earth's atmosphere, he possessed all the power of God, all the knowledge of God, and all the glory and wisdom of God. Jesus was, in essence, God. And so the first, the first of Jesus, piece of Jesus' identity that we can never miss is that Jesus is God. And so that second piece, the second note that Paul's going to hit for us is Jesus incarnate. All right, and we'll explain that word in just a second, but let's read Philippians 2, 5 through 7 real quick. Um, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Um, and so God, or so Jesus incarnate, all right? Incarnate is a, is a, is a big word, but it's a really, really important word. Um, how many of y'all like tacos? I like tacos. Yeah. So if you like tacos, you probably recognize the middle piece of that word, right? Carne. 
carne asada, right? Carne picada or carnitas, right? The word carne basically just means flesh, right? It means meat. And so what this is saying, incarnate means Jesus took on flesh. He took on meat. That sounds weird. <laughs> he became a man. He, he took on flesh, as it says. He took on the flesh of man. Um, so a huge part of Jesus' identity in this is his incarnation, his taking on a flesh, of human flesh. Um, and actually, that, that word, form, the essence word, we talked about how it talks about God in, in, in verse seven, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's the same word. That's the same word. He took the essence of humanity upon himself. So Jesus, being fully God, in essence God, became man, in essence man. He took on the essence of what it means to be man. Everything that it means for you and I to be human, Jesus took that on. The frailties of our bones and muscles, the, the drives and the urges of our, of our minds, of our weak minds, of our flesh, Jesus took all of that on. What it means for you and I to be human, Jesus took that on when he was born an infant. Now, I just want you to imagine for a second what that cost Jesus. What did that cost Jesus to become a man? And the NIV actually, verse six in, in, in what was on the screen says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Um, in the NIV, it actually says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. So in other words, in, in, in his human essence, in his incarnation, Jesus set aside parts of his divinity when he took on humanity. He set, he set aside parts of that essence so that he could become human in human flesh. And the all-powerful, all-knowing essences of what, what made Jesus God, for excuse me, he set aside as he entered into the human experience. And in Mark 13, 32, we actually see an example of this. Um, Mark 13, 32, and you're will be on the screen, says, excuse me, but concerning the day or the hour, he's talking about his return. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. But concerning the day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Jesus set aside his all-knowing, his all-powerful parts of himself when he took on humanity. And actually, if you'll notice, Jesus, when he's on earth, how many times did he use his power to prevent himself from being harmed, from being killed? How many times did he use his power, his divine power, to help himself? Contrast that with how many times he used his power to help other people. The point is, is that um, he set aside, it cost him to become man. It cost him to become human. He gave up that divinity be, to become a human. And this is a big piece of Jesus' identity. It's what we titled this series, a condescending love. That word condescension means being from high brought low. Jesus was brought low when he became a man, as, that, as our text says. 
So why is it so important that we get these two pieces of Jesus' identity um, first? It's because Jesus is God, Jesus is man, and we need both of those components to see the third piece in our text, which is Jesus the Savior. And so let's look at at Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The crux of the Christian faith is the cross and what Jesus did in dying on one. See, because we are humans, we're weak, we're broken, we're frail creatures. We're sinners, we're rebels, we've rejected God in part, and apart from any kind of intervention, any outside intervention, we are destined for destruction. And so Jesus entered into flesh, he became man. Jesus was incarnate so that man, Jesus, could pay the penalty for the sin of man. In order for the perfect justice of God to be satisfied, a man need to, needed to die for the sin of man. In order for your sin to be made right between you and God, a life of equal or greater value needed to be paid for that. And if God, if, if, if he didn't require payment for that, if he just let us live in open rebellion and disobedience and anarchy and live our lives in open opposition to who God is, if we know God is all good, all powerful, all loving, all kind, how can God be justice if he lets us live in open rebellion to him? There was a penalty that had to be paid for our rebellion. And so in order for God to maintain his divine justice, Jesus had to become a man, incarnate, and then die the death that we deserved. And see, by dying in your place as the incarnate Jesus, the perfect, sinless Jesus that he was, he reconciled you to God. He paid for your rebellion. He became man so that he could die for the sin of man, Jesus the Savior. See, Jesus is God. Jesus became man. And because those are true, Jesus can be our Savior because only God could live a life and remain unstained by the sin that so affects our natures. Because he was in essence God and in essence man, he didn't have that that initial bent to sin that we do. See, in other words, only Jesus could live perfectly without sin. Just what a creative God. Like to get around not really to get around, but to satisfy his own desire and need for justice and yet save us still without making us pay for it. Jesus became something we can't even comprehend in fully God and fully man. What a creative God we have. I just think that's wild. So Jesus, this, that third piece, Jesus is savior. Um, Jesus accomplishing salvation for us leads us into our final, that final note that makes up the symphony that Paul's, that Paul's creating here of who Jesus is, and that is Jesus exalted. And we're going to read once again the rest of our passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That fourth piece of Jesus' identity in our text tonight is Jesus exalted. The story of Jesus' incarnation doesn't end with his death. It doesn't end with his paying that sacrifice, paying that, that satisfying that divine need for justice. Jesus died on the cross for the sin of humanity, but he also rose to new life, unmarred and unstained by death. Jesus overcame the perceived permanence of death, thus allowing you and I to experience the new permanence of eternal life lived in his name. Jesus exalted. See, the reason we sing hymns and songs, the reason that we come here to talk about the gospel and open up the Bible and teach it, the reason we gather on Sundays, the reason GCF exists is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ because that is how God has chosen to find his glory. God the Father. We're talking, the fourth piece of Jesus' identity is the exalted and supreme, that word we talked about a couple weeks ago, exalted and supreme Jesus. But we often, as far as Christianity goes, we often talk about and think about how Jesus came to die for me. He came to earth as a man, lived perfectly and died for me, for my sake, so that I could have eternal life. And sure, that is absolutely true. Our salvation is absolutely a piece of, of why he took on that flesh, why he entered into this broken body and died that horrible, that horrible death. But make no mistake. The reason that God does anything is that his glory might be maximized. The reason God does anything is that he might be glorified. The gospel and the incarnation of Jesus isn't about saving you for your sake. Christmas isn't about Jesus arriving on earth merely for the sake of humanity. Christmas is all about the glory and the fame of Jesus Christ. For us, salvation, it's a mere means. It is a merciful means. It is a gracious means to God's ultimate goal, which is glorifying himself. Once again, what a creative God that the way that he maximizes his own glory is by saving us. It's remarkable. See, the universe doesn't revolve around us. We often think that it doesn't revolve around us and neither do the truths of the gospel. They revolve around Jesus and they exist to glorify his name forever. So, it is, it is absolutely vital that we understand who Jesus actually is. It is important that we are of one mind grasping the reality of our Savior and King. That is, Jesus is God, Jesus incarnate, Jesus the Savior, and Jesus exalted. And like I said earlier, we read all of this for a reason. Um, we read verse five specifically through 11 for a reason. And that is because that, those verses 
are over and over again, we are reading and we are taking in a description, a glorious description of who Jesus is. See, Jesus, 33 years or however long he lived on earth, it is a mere sliver of Jesus' identity. Do you get that? It is a sliver of who Jesus is because bookending those 32 or those 33 years is an eternal existence in the past with God the Father. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And on the other end is eternal glory and praise to his name. That little sliver is what we focus on so much around this time of year and miss so often those glorious, eternal, profound bookends. Um, so tonight, with that, everything we just talked about, that last, you know, however long, 25 minutes or whatever, it was all, it was, it was all a, a, what we call theology. Actually, we call it Christology, who Jesus is. And um, we can often, that can often feel a tedious task, uh, that idea of, of learning and knowing and theology and all these big words and stuff. Um, what does that have to do with help, helping you to live life, helping me live life when I read that? How does that help us move on with our lives? If I'm already a Christian, how does teaching me the gospel over and over and over again help me live my life in a better, more faithful way? Let's go back and read the verses that we skipped. Verse one through five. Well, we skipped three and four. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, everything we just talked about, all of that theology, all of that truth, surrounding who Jesus is. That's what enables you to live well. That's what enables you to live rightly. Do you see what Paul's doing there? He tells you to do something and then he built out this identity of who Jesus is. He absolutely, so we often, when we, when we look at like how to live or what to do in life, we often look at like Jesus' earthly ministry. Say, and in this case, Paul could easily point it back and said, he took care of prostitutes. He hung out with tax collectors. Like he healed, he healed the blind and the lame and he, gave, he helped the, those, the, the leopards. He often was selfless and humble with himself. But Paul doesn't point back to those things. What does Paul do? He builds out this, this high identity of Jesus. He gives us a theology of who Jesus is and says out of that, you now, Go be humble and selfless. See, the reason I want to close with that idea tonight um, is because I want y'all to marinate in these truths. Marinate was a poor choice of word there. <laughs> um, what Paul's urging is for us to think and to know and in this specific case, think and know who Jesus is. It is absolutely true that Jesus was a good teacher, that he indeed gave commands and instruction on how to live. 
But the greater purpose of the incarnation wasn't so that Jesus could be a good teacher and tell us how to live. The greater purpose of the incarnation was to live perfectly, die a, a death he didn't deserve, conquer sin and death for our sake, and be exalted as the object of perfect worship for eternity. And out of that reality, out of knowing that reality, we can live rightfully and faithfully and point to the name of Jesus. We haven't talked a lot about that idea of humility or selflessness. And even within what we talked about, we could talk about so many more implications. What did it cost Jesus to condescend to us? What is it costing you to follow Jesus? Jesus didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped and held onto. What are you holding on to? What, what is it that you can't let go of for the sake of the gospel? See, all these implications we haven't talked about yet. But the reason for that is because all of those things can only make sense and only help if you have that theology, that truth of who Jesus is. And so this Christmas, as we go home, celebrate Jesus, celebrate the birth, Celebrate who Jesus is, not just in the incarnation, but who he is in his entire identity. Not just that sliver, but the eternity that he exists in, both before and after. You see, our theme, condescending love, it only makes sense if there is a greater place from which Jesus came to earth and to which he returned. Let that truth of who Jesus is let the identity of Jesus sift itself through your life and be changed, not by commands, but by the reality of who God is and what he has done. Because I'm going to close just this simple sentence. There is no greater aid to right living than right believing. And there is nothing greater you can believe than the reality and the, the identity of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, again, we're humbled. As you tell us to be humbled in your word, the, uh, the reality, the truth, the facts of, of how you designed our redemption in Jesus, that idea of condescending, the idea of a condescending love that Jesus came from a, this perfect existence and entered into the frailty of human form for our sake and for his glory. Father, I pray that that truth would be forever preeminent in how we think about our faith and how we think about Christmas. Father, let the identity of Jesus be the central piece of how we think about everything in life. Father, we love you. It is to the glory of Jesus and to your glory that we pray, amen.